Have you ever wondered what it's like to fall asleep in one country and wake up in another? Not like when you're traveling in a car or plane and you fall asleep in one place and wake up somewhere else. I mean when the country you're in just suddenly changes. Hold that thought as we go back in time to 1848. After the Mexican-American War, the U.S. acquired the land that is now California, Utah, Nevada, Arizona, and New Mexico. All the Mexican people living in these regions found themselves on U.S. soil from one day to the next. For many of us, the Mexican-American War was taught through the lens of a growing United States and its manifest destiny. The idea that the westward expansion of the new country was somehow destined by God and that the continent was rightfully theirs. From Mexico's perspective, U.S. soldiers came into their country and provoked a bloody war. And when that war was over and the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo was signed in 1848, the borders moved south and the Mexicans living in those territories unwillingly became the first Latinos. What does it mean to be Latino anyway? Latino is a term that gained popularity in the 1990s as a way to identify people in the United States who trace their heritage back to Latin America. It's an alternative to the word Hispanic, a term coined by the U.S. Census in 1970 for the same purpose, but that many people reject because they feel it centers on lineage from Spain. No catch-all term used to label people who hail from more than 20 countries and territories can encompass all of who we are. But more on that later. For now, we'll use the term Latinos to talk about the first group of people from Mexico on this land. They are the first Latinos, and they didn't choose to come here. The border crossed them. I want to say he was 25 when the border crossed over. My great-grandfathers, or my, yeah, from my... That's Turilla Chavez, a content creator and digital organizer here at Pulso. She was born and raised in the Southwest, where her family has been for generations, and her great-great-great-grandfather, Manuel Chavez, was one of the first Latinos. When people talk about Mexicans coming to the United States, we didn't come here, they came to us when they bought our land. My nana, my grandmother, she's done the ancestry lineage. She can go back to like the 1500s with our ancestry line. And so she's done all the research on our Turiya told us that her family comes from a lineage of farm workers from what is now known as New Mexico. The Chavezes didn't have much money or access to education, and the family children would leave school to work on their land. So when the border moved, they decided to stay because... There was more opportunity for growth in terms of job seeking because Mexico at the time didn't have strong opportunities for jobs. So they stayed, but the world around them changed and suddenly home was a new place, which meant they were forced to adapt to a totally new way of life. They weren't allowed to speak Spanish in school or they would be hit by a ruler and they didn't teach Spanish to any of their kids because they were afraid that their kids would be punished for speaking Spanish. So my great-grandparents would speak Spanish to each other, but they never taught their eight children how to speak Spanish, including my nana. So it was sort of bred out of our family. The Chavezes lost their country and their language instantly. And almost 200 years later, Turilla is still dealing with the consequences of what happened so long ago. I've been trying to teach myself how to speak Spanish for years in schools on my own time. And it's just so frustrating because uh, Spanish was a huge part of my family's life. I mean, my great-grandmother, she speaks Spanish. Me and my siblings and my dad, we are not able to speak Spanish. And as much as I try and have conversations with my great-grandma, it's 
just frustrating knowing that I can't really communicate in that way. And like so many of us, Turilla's sense of identity is linked to the Spanish language. I consider myself um, Mexicana, and I think there is this almost shame or guilt that is felt um, using that identity because so often people that use that identity are able to speak Spanish or they're able to um, even celebrate like Dia de Muertos with their families. And because we never grew up doing any of those things, it almost makes you question like, well, am I really a Mexicana? Can I really use that to define myself? Unfortunately, Turilla's experience is not unique. Oh yeah, that's exactly what happened to my family. My mom and dad were punished for speaking it. So they didn't teach it to me. This is Dr. Patricia Perea, a lecturer in the Chicano Studies Department at the University of New Mexico. I've tried to like come back around to it, but it's not easy. The like comfort with like communication and stuff just, you know, it's gone. And language wasn't the only thing that was lost when the border crossed over. You will still hear a lot of people, including like my family, talk about the land that they lost. Um, to the Americans in the 18 and 1900s. And, you know, there's some New Mexicans who kept it, but a lot were too poor to keep it. So they just, you know, they couldn't. But um, the part about land loss too that sucks is it's like people will lament over lost land without ever considering that that land, when the Spanish gave it to them, was taken from Native people. So, you know, it's a, it's a, hard, it's a hard conversation to have. Many of these families who lost their land witnessed their homes, culture, and lives diverge further and further away from their roots. There's these beautiful, beautiful homes, like, you know, with the thick adobe walls and the vigas and all of this stuff that's gorgeous. The U.S. comes in and they start, like, assimilating in. So you get to the early 1900s and they're changing their houses to look more American, you know, all their traditional like curanderismo, parteras, like all that stuff. The doctors, the hospitals come in and all of a sudden you're not supposed to have babies at home. You're not supposed to speak Spanish. You're being taught how to be white. You're but not some of them did Spanish. fight against the notion that they had to be something other than who they were. As you can imagine, once the treaty was put in place, the Mexicans who were now on American land weren't exactly welcomed with open arms. Not only was their culture discouraged and their land taken away, but over the years they were over-policed and kept out of the election process through voter suppression laws. The effects of this discrimination toward Latino, Black, Indigenous, Asian, LGBTQIA+, and disabled communities in our country persist today. But we haven't stood idle in the face of these barriers. During the 1960s, members of these groups decided it was time to try and put a stop to centuries of mistreatment. This after the break. So after a century of mistreatment and watching their culture being taken away, the families of the first Latinos decided to push back. Along with millions of others, they made their voices heard during the social movements of the 1960s, and a new identity was born. Chicano. What it is, essentially, is um, it's an American identity, right? It was born in the United States. It doesn't exist anywhere else. And it's something that came out of the 1960s and 70s. Previous to that, it had been kind of a derogatory term, um, almost like pocho or vendida or something like that, like a sellout, Americanized kind of thing. But they took it back over in the 1960s um, as a means of saying we're 
woke. The Chicano identity incorporates a little bit of history, a little bit of myth, and a lot of social justice. It came to be when descendants of Mexicans who had the border cross them tried to claim an identity that represented their place in America, their rightful place in Mexican history. Because many Latinos don't have a clear knowledge of our ancestral lineage, part of the Chicano identity was piecing together the missing parts of their history. When Mexican-Americans in the 60s studied Aztec folklore, they learned about Aslan, an Aztec land that was believed to have extended as far north as the U.S. Southwest. Just by learning about the possibility of a place in the U.S. that once belonged to their indigenous ancestors, these budding activists were able to feel a spiritual ownership of the land that they'd been raised to believe they didn't belong on. By giving themselves the name Chicano, Mexican-Americans were able to reclaim a kinship to the land that so many of their ancestors lost to the Treaty of Guadalupe. We had no actual tribe to affiliate, but since the Mexica slash Aztec were something that we could kind of trace a history to, they took that term, right? Mexica put it into an American term and it became Chicano. So it became a left pro-Indigenous U.S.-born Mexican-American identity. So yeah, I call myself that. <laughs> Dr. Perea is a descendant from people who lived in the Llano Estacado, a region that includes parts of eastern New Mexico and the Texas Panhandle. But she grew up in Texas, a state that has its own history with Mexico. Before the Mexican-American War, Texas seceded from Mexico to become its own nation called the Republic of Texas— the fight to become independent of Mexico resulted in major battles, like the famous Battle of the Alamo in San Antonio. After nine years as its own territory, Texas became part of the U.S. as the 28th state. Mexico resented this action, and border disputes between the two countries is what eventually led to the Mexican-American War. As a child, she didn't feel her teachers were encouraging her to learn about the real Mexican-American and Native American territory in her own backyard. In the story, all you ever hear is like Davy Crockett died and, you know, all this stuff about the white Texans. They, first of all, don't tell you that a lot of the people in the Alamo were Mexican. They were Tejanos who were fighting for statehood against Mexico. You know, what it did for me as a little kid was when you hear Mexicans being called cowardly, when you hear them being compared to brave Texans, when you hear them being called inept all the time, you know, it deeply affects your self-esteem. It affected my self-esteem. And in one particular instance, she felt a strong urge to combat the narrative that Mexicans were the villains in American history. They made us do a little coloring book to celebrate the 150th anniversary of the Alamo. They like did the little printout of the Alamo and we were supposed to color it. So I did it really pretty and I was like super happy about it. But then... Like, I'm finished with the picture. It looks great. And then, like, I lost my mind as a second grader. And I took out the permanent marker. And I drew a huge Mexican flag on top of the Alamo. And then a huge Mexican soldier. Because technically we won. And then, like, I remember looking at it and being like, I messed up my picture. And I was like, and it's in permanent marker. So then I tried to erase the the soldier in the flag, and I couldn't do it. But that became my whole dissertation chapter because I was like, see, we're like haunted by this narrative of Anglos and Mexicans, <laughs> even if we're in second grade. <laughs> so Patricia grew up confused and ashamed about her identity and what it meant. 
After spending so much of her early life being told she should resent her Mexican heritage, it was hard to hold on to her defiance. Because I did grow up in a place that was mostly white, I spent so much time rejecting being Mexican. Because being Mexican meant, you know, it meant being other, like not getting to fit in. Then she went off to college where she enrolled in her first Mexican-American literature class. This is where she discovered a new side of her Latino identity. All of a sudden, like, here's, you know, a thousand pages of Chicano lit, like, dumped on my lap. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> we've been writing. We've been artists. Some of us are professors. You know, we have we have a whole community here. Um, and that's when it opened up. A whole community made up of Chicanos, Mexicanos, Tejanos, and Mexican-Americans along the Southwest who have rebuilt an identity, their language, architecture, customs, and a place for themselves after so much was taken. And aside from forced assimilation, they faced racial and ethnic persecution in the form of over-policing and voter suppression, segregation, and all of these issues that continue to this day. They've been told they didn't belong in the U.S. while simultaneously being forced to forget they were ever a part of Mexico. But against unfavorable odds, these first Latinos prevailed. During the census for the year 2000, Dr. Perea overheard her family discussing what race they were going to identify as. My mom and my grandma were having this talk, and my grandma is like, Mija, I don't want to put white. I'm not white. And my mom's like, you know, you can just write mestiza. And I was like, whoa, my mom just said mestiza. That's interesting. It was rejecting whiteness. Her grandma was owning her indigenous roots after a lifetime in a world that told her she should strive to blend into white America. And as for our team member, Turilla, well, she and her family have been on a journey and have made peace with history while finding their own ways of holding on to their identity. One thing that we always make when we're all together is pozole. Um, that's a big part of our uh, culture and heritage. And we also all make tamales together. So I would say those are the two main food groups around Christmas time. Am I really a Mexicana? Can I really use that to define myself? And I think the answer is yes, that you can and I do, because that's who my family was and that's what our culture is and that's what we come from. Despite those things sort of being taken away, I don't think that doesn't mean that they can't be brought back into our lives. If there's one thing we can learn from exploring the origins of the first Latinos, it's how some bonds to family and heritage can withstand even the strongest forces trying to erase them. 173 years after the signing of the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, Dr. Patricia Perea, Turilla, and their families are showing us what it looks like to revive those bonds and celebrate what makes us who we are. You can subscribe to The Pulso Pod wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you heard, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tell a friend to give us a listen. Have questions or story ideas to send our way? Send us an email to info at projectpulso.org. The Pulso podcast is produced and edited by Charlie Garcia and Lisanne Ramos. Additional editing by Steph Amaya Mora. Research and booking by Turilla Chavez, Rey Aguilera, Ana Mendoza, and Sabina Malouf. Original music by Julian Blackmore. 
Our cover art was designed by Jonathan Torres, and I'm your host, Liz Alarcón. The voices you hear in our intro, that's the Pulso team. Thanks for listening. Hey, Pulso fam. I want to tell you all about Atlas Lingue, a Studio 80 podcast about language, culture, and communication. Have you ever wondered what your cat is trying to tell you? Or how Disney Pixar writers craft stories that resonate across numerous languages? Atlas Lingue host Luis Lopez explores these topics and so much more. It's a show about the confusing, wonderful, and weird world of language, and this season, they're diving deep into the language of culture online. They're interviewing content creators from different countries who document their daily lives and cultural backgrounds on YouTube, TikTok, and Instagram. New episodes air every other Monday wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also watch all the interviews on their YouTube channel at 80 Podcasts.